I'm Gabriel Spitzer, and this is Transmission. I have some company today. Producer Jennifer Wings with me. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, Gabriel. So, Jennifer, do you, do you remember this? Today, Public Health Seattle in King County is announcing three new presumptive positive cases of novel coronavirus, COVID-19, including one person who died. Yes, I very much remember that day, and the world has not been the same ever since. Yeah, exactly. So that was the, the first reported death in the United States from coronavirus. It was right here in the Seattle area, uh, and that came on February 29th. But what's amazing is that just over two weeks after that, the first dose of a possible coronavirus vaccine was injected into a human being also right here in Seattle. That is amazing. Yeah, right here at uh, Kaiser Permanente here in Washington State. Yeah, and it's it's just it's crazy fast. And Vaccines normally take years to develop, and the fact that this came so quickly um, is a potentially really important development. And it's all because of this new technology that that investigators are using to develop new kinds of vaccines that hopefully can turn around fast enough to actually help in the middle of a crisis and not just years after. And this is exactly what we're going to be digging into today on Transmission. We're going to look at this Manhattan Project-esque mobilization to develop a vaccine in a very short period of time, and especially at the first one to go into human trials. An amazing thing is happening in the science world. More than 100 vaccine candidates are being developed all over the globe right now as we speak. Uh, Dozens are already into human trials. Things are still a bit of a ways off. Gabriel, what is so exciting about this vaccine, the one that is being developed by uh, Kaiser Permanente? Well, I think that its biggest advantage is that it's quick because different methods, you know, lead to to, to different kinds of results, right? And if you look at the candidates that are being developed to tackle COVID-19, um, particularly if you look at like kind of the first class, the stuff that the, there's five or so that are kind of the farthest along in the United States, they all have one thing in common. They're all trying to trick your immune system into thinking it's been infected by this virus so that it mounts a defense, but without actually infecting you and making you sick. So um, that's the the point of all of these different things, but they get there in very different ways. And the thing about the kind of traditional, conventional way of developing a vaccine is that you have this chicken and egg problem. Like what came first, the chicken or the egg? What I mean is that they use actual chickens and eggs. Ah, yes. Um, they they uh, to, to grow viruses that they then kill or weaken and inject in somebody, they need cells and eggs Eggs are actually big. Like, like if you an egg yolk is one gigantic cell. I learned. So think about that when you have your omelet tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> but you know, viruses don't replicate like bacteria, right? They don't just divide and and multiply on their own. They need to be in a cell to go through their normal life cycle. So um, they have to grow a bunch of these in a lab in order to make a traditional vaccine, and that takes a lot of time and a lot of eggs. Some COVID vaccine candidates use a, a kind of updated version of that method using just mammal cells instead of eggs. The problem is this, as we said, takes a really long time. It can take four or five, six years traditionally on a traditional timeline because it just takes time. You got to grow, you got to grow virus and then you got to grow more and then you got to purify them and grow them again. And it's, it's pretty painstaking. So how is this moving faster? What is it about this process, this new process that is so much faster than developing something in, in an egg? Well, 
there are several of the candidates, including that one at, at that was tested first at Kaiser, that don't use any actual parts from virus. They don't have to grow virus. All they use is a little piece of code. Like like a computer code? Like, <laughs> where's the code coming from? Well, it's it's comparable. Yeah, it's actually RNA, which is like your cell's version of computer code. Wait, 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 wait. wait what, what is RNA? It's sort of that that sounds familiar from high school biology class. What What is that? Well, you could picture DNA, right? Like it's the little twisted ladder thing. Well, if you were to peel that apart and have the two strands, the w- one strand would look at least just like RNA. So the DNA is the code in your cell. It makes RNA, which then travels to a different part of the cell to actually make stuff to build, say, new cells or to build new little machines that your body needs for various things. So the RNA is a little bit like a a messenger. Think of it like a thumb drive. You know, you take it from your hard drive, have a little code on it, you plug it into something else, and then you can transfer that code. So that's, that's RNA. And the idea is that the RNA triggers your cells to actually make, I guess, replicas of those little virus pieces. So that's, that's amazing. It's wild. It's brand new. It's really interesting. I I was talking to uh, Colin Fields about this. He's, he's a, he's a physician and, and part of the investigative team at Kaiser Permanente Washington. And he was talking about how much simpler this is to just produce. It doesn't need uh, chickens and eggs in order to have as much production. Uh, the production itself is done through our own cellular biology. So instead of waiting for the virus to do its own thing in an egg or in a cell, you, you just crank out those little snippets of code, those little packages of RNA. And you can do that based just on the genome of the virus. So if you know the genetic code of the virus, which we had figured out by about January, not we, they, scientists, um, then you basically just can copy a piece of the code and make it. And it's very, very quick. It's really remarkable that this vaccination was created off of a genome. It it didn't require production in a lab. It was able to look at the coding that was produced uh, in January and create a vaccine that was given to a human being by March. It took only 66 days. That's unbelievable for development of vaccination. So we're working with code with RNA injected into the body, um, telling the cells what to do to to generate an immune response to this nasty virus. How does this actually work to um, to fight this off? How does this work to protect us and vanquish COVID-19 from our bodies? Yeah, so if the end goal is to provoke an immune response. Basically, you just have to make sure your immune cells meet a piece of the virus that they can recognize. And, you know, that can happen through getting sick when you have virus replicating in your body. It can happen through a traditional vaccine when you get a dead or weakened virus that they can bounce into. Or in this case, really what you're doing is tricking your body into making its own little virus pieces that then your immune cells will recognize as foreign, gear up to fight. And then when a real virus with those real pieces comes into your body, they will be ready to rock. So the way it all works is that, you know, in the, in the needle, there is some goop and in the goop are tons and tons of these little packages of of RNA. So the RNA is what is synthesized in the lab. It's packaged up in these little layers of fat, like, um, like almost like little soap bubbles. Hmm. And 
that is inside this goop that gets injected into your body. And then when those little bubbles of RNA bump into a cell, the bubble is made of similar stuff that the cell's outer layer is made out of. And so they kind of merge. Like if you can imagine a little soap bubble bumping into a bigger one and they just become a big bubble. Yeah. And that projects the RNA into the cell where it starts to like float around inside. Kind of like absorbed. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then... um. In your cells, you have these tiny little machines called ribosomes. Um, you have them in almost every cell of your body. They're like little tiny 3D printers. And so if you can think of the RNA like that thumb drive, it bumps into a ribosome, which has a perfectly shaped you know, USB port for this RNA to plug into. And the ribosome goes, oh, okay, time to do my job. And then it starts to grab all the little raw materials in your cell and actually produce a three-dimensional object, specifically a protein which is a big complex molecule that is kind of the building block of all of biology so usb connects and then that code says create this kind of protein and so it does and what it actually makes is almost a perfect replica of the spike protein of the novel coronavirus meaning those little pointy things that stick out of the virus you've seen those in all the pictures this gets your cell to make those it, 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 to me it sounds like it's like a like when i'm thinking of um how buildings are constructed these are the architectural plans uh, uh for how to make the the spike protein to notify the body to be on alert yeah exactly and so basically your ribosomes then kind of get tricked into making these spike proteins and then the cool thing to me at least, is that the spike proteins kind of migrate to the outside of the cell and they stick out of the cell's membrane that surrounds it. And so it winds up kind of making the cell look like a virus. I mean, if you can think of those little pointy things on the virus as a crown, which is somebody's idea of what it looks like, corona, it means crown, um, then it's like the cell is putting on a disguise. It's like a costume. Yeah, it's like a, like a Halloween costume for your cell. Yeah, exactly. It's putting on its own replica crown. And the idea is that um, that will basically kind of fool your immune cells into thinking that you've been infected and, and, and mount a response. That is amazing. I, that is that is really, really incredible. It's like a sleight of hand. And, and the fact that they were able to zero in on the bit of code that would make the cell put this costume on, but to not use any bit of the virus to actually uh, infect someone is, uh, it just blows my mind. Yeah, it's kind of a testament to like, how 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 brilliant this science is and also how brilliant your immune system is because it's it's pretty amazing that they can just bump into a little molecule and that that could potentially give you protection from a deadly illness i mean they learn really really quickly and as soon as those spikes start to appear on the cells that are inoculated with this vaccine your immune system cranks up, I mean, if it works, your immune system is supposed to crank up and basically initiate all these pretty complicated processes that then gets your immune system ready for the next time it encounters that crown. Um, and, and this, Colin Fields kind of explained it like this. When it's being presented outside of the cell, and what it will do sometimes is activate uh, T cells to destroy parts of the virus it then presents those again outside of its cell and says, you need to look for this. And it says that to the B cells, you need to develop the spies that are going to go around your body and look and see if this um, new virus is present. 
then basically the immune cells take over from there and they have a couple of different ways of attacking a virus or in this case, you know, um, getting the, the troops all kind of trained up in order to attack the virus if and when it comes. There are big cells that can basically eat them you know, surround them and digest them. Um, there are these little antibodies, which are much smaller things. And the, the point of those is to block the virus from, um, from connecting with your body's cells and infecting them. So um, the way I, it was described to me uh, is that the virus has a landing gear. Those spike proteins are like the landing gear and an antibody gets in the way so it cannot lock on to the cell. Our, our natural defense system gets triggered by all of this. Exactly. And um, and it really it, it really revs up very much like it's going into battle. You know, there's there's different kinds of cells signaling to each other. Your cell types are coordinating their response. It's incredible. I mean, just understanding how the immune system works overall is a pretty pretty astounding thing. And that is, you know, arguably rarely been more important than right now when we're trying to figure out how we can create some immunity to this brand new disease. I mean, this is all really amazing, but there's got to be some downsides here. Do we know what the dangers are with all of this? Well, um, so first of all, it, it is quite new. There are no RNA vaccines approved for, for human use yet. So this is all new territory, brand new. New territory, totally. It's It's been kind of in the works for things like Zika and cytomegalovirus and some other stuff, but it's not ever gone into wide use. So this is... This is new. Um, and so one of the things that we don't know, first of all, are like how bad the side effects are. And it's important to note that this is not, there's no chance of you getting infected from coronavirus from one of these RNA vaccines because they're not, they're not injecting viruses into you, just these little pieces of code. And your cells only make that tiny little bit of the virus. So it's not like you have viruses running around your body. Um, it can make you feel lousy, um, which is the, because your your immune system causes inflammation and stuff like that when it gets going. So that can make you feel bad, but it's actually a good sign. It means you're, it's working. It means you're, it, it's provoking the immune response that, that the vaccine is intended to. Um, so we don't know exactly how bad those side effects are. We're starting to get some information in the early trials that suggest that, you know, at particular doses, at least they're not too bad. Yeah, because you don't want to rev up the immune system too much because then you're attacking yourself. Right, right. So with this vaccine that was tested by Kaiser, it was developed by the, the pharmaceutical company Moderna. In, in the first early trials, they found that the highest dose made some people feel pretty lousy. So they stopped testing that and they're going into lower doses now. Um, so that's one big unknown is like how how many side effects might it cause? Early indications good, much more to learn. The other big question is how long the immunity might last. Um, you know, we know that in early trials, this RNA vaccine did create the right kind of antibodies and the right kind of immune response. We haven't seen whether or not that will actually keep somebody from getting sick. That and how long it might last those are questions that get answered in the more advanced human trials. So the first trial had like 80 people in it, um, pretty small. Phase two has hundreds, but phase three, which is starting very, very soon, will have tens of thousands, at least like 30,000 people in phase three trials for each of those vaccine candidates. So that's going to tell us a whole heck of a lot more. And it's probably a little early to start getting really excited about how much this could 
change the course of the pandemic until we see the results from those three trials. Yeah, and, and as fast as the science is moving and this progress is being made, I imagine there's one thing uh, that we really have no control over in, in, in learning about how long immunity lasts, and that's time. Like, you can't contract time, right? Yeah, exactly. You can You can make a vaccine really fast. You can produce a vaccine really fast. You can even make sure that it's at least in the short run, safe and effective. But there's no way to know how long it lasts if it's going to give you immunity for life or immunity for like three months until you get deep into these trials and follow large numbers of people for long periods of time. And you have to know even more than that because you have to know all those things not only for the whole population but for little subpopulations. How does it affect old folks? How does it affect people who are immunocompromised? How does it affect kids? How does it affect whatever? I mean, there's a million different subpopulations that you need to be sure that this thing is safe and effective for before you roll it out to hundreds of millions or billions of people. So it's hard to overemphasize how crucial these these human trials are in, in getting a working vaccine. And it's a colossal project. I mean, you have all these interlocking phases of human trials for multiple vaccine candidates. And one of the very top people coordinating all of that for the entire country is a guy named Larry Corey, who is a a scientist, a virologist based right here in Seattle at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. He, He used to be the president and director of that organization. And now he's kind of running the show for the entire United States vaccine development effort. I I talked to him recently and asked him about how this RNA candidate kind of fits into the larger effort and just what he is seeing and expecting from his kind of 10,000 foot view of the country's vaccine development strategy. We have a large population in the United States, 330 million people, 220 million adults and another 110 million children. And so there's no one vaccine that can be manufactured in a short period of time that could be given to everybody. So the program was designed to sort of think through this strategically, uh, to conceptually try and in as rapid a fashion with no cut cutting of corners as it relates to safety, to try and put as many vaccines uh, as we can through their paces. We actually have one trial that it's opening each month, one in August, one in September, one in October, and one in November. So there are five separate trials. Each trial is designed to try and get an answer within six or seven months of the trial starting. Um, And now what we need is the citizens of the United States to help us test this. We as a citizen need science to lead us out of this, but now science needs the citizenry to participate in the trials. We need to make the trials inclusive of our diverse country. We need to make the trials multi-generational. Elderly people have major complications associated with the disease, and we need to make the trial multi-ethnic. We must enroll people from our uh, African-American, Black, uh, and Latinx communities because they have had uh, the greatest burden of disease. And we wanna make sure we have a vaccine that's relevant for the people who have the greatest burden of disease. Just out of curiosity, how often do you communicate with Dr. Fauci? Mm, Probably five out of the seven days a week for the last, uh, I don't know, four months. He's been a close friend of mine for a long time, an amazing man, and um, it's a pleasure to work with him. Could I ask how you feel about his um, his expectation that we would have a, a vaccine, at least one of the candidates available 
by the end of the year or into early next? Well, he knows how we've designed the trial. So um, uh, we've designed it that we hope within six months of starting, we would have an answer. But that's a function of you know, how well the trial goes, how efficient we are, and how well the vaccine works. Uh, vaccine works well actually separates itself uh, quicker than a vaccine that looks less well. So you take six months from the end of uh, July, we come to where he's said early winter, and um, that's when we expect to see results. All right. Well put. Um, if you feel comfortable doing so, um, can you give me a sense of how concerned you are about those kinds of pressures being brought to bear? Um, it's really important for both the scientific community and us as citizens of both our country and our nation to allow these trials to come to fruition. I have no doubt that we can do these trials. The scientific establishment that we have established in the United States is unparalleled, and the investigators who are working on this are just a fantastic team, and it's an honor for me to, to, to work with them on this. We will be able to do these trials, and these trials are necessary because they will tell us how safe it is and how effective it is, and they will define whether you know, I feel comfortable giving a vaccine to my grandchild, let alone I feel comfortable giving a vaccine to me who is at risk and haven't gotten on an airplane since, you know, since this whole thing has started. So we can do these trials with veracity and accuracy if we're left to do these trials. And shortening the scientific process will not help us out of the anxiety and the uncertainty. We need to relieve the uncertainty and science can give us and deliver us from this uncertainty if we have a vaccine. But we need to know how well it works, in, in whom it works, and how safe it is. And if these trials can be done, then we will know those answers. And it's not just the answers for us as a nation, it's the rest of the world, billions of people. So these trials are really important. End of statement. Thank you, Dr. Corey. That was Larry Corey of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, and he is one of the coordinators of the COVID-19 Prevention Network, which is coordinating the human trials for the major vaccine research efforts here in the United States. Gabriel, thank you so much for, for pulling back the curtain and uh, giving us a tour of, of the major players here on the ground who are doing all of this really important work. Super interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, it's, it's work that I love doing and that I'm going to miss. Do you want to tell people what your next chapter is? Sure. So this is um, this is a bit of a, a of a see you later from me. I'm going to be transitioning out of my role here at KNKX and into a public health role, um, into the trenches of uh, pandemic response directly. So um, I am going to be taking my leave of transmission this podcast, but leaving it in the outrageously talented and capable hands of my colleague. I think her name is Jennifer Wang. <laughs> I think I know that person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jennifer, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of mixed feelings about um, leaving this thing that we started, uh, but I feel much, much better knowing that, that you are going to be its caretaker and host.
Yes. Yeah. Gabriel, this is bittersweet. Uh, I am excited about this new role, but you will be dearly, dearly missed. You have such a good head for science and you are so good at uh, getting to the nitty gritty in a very understandable and human way. And I feel good that you will be continuing this work in another way. Um, you're going to be doing really important work with King County Public Health here in Seattle. Uh, and you are going to do so, so well. Transmission will continue. It might be a little bit of a different flavor without your voice and without your brain being a part of it. But it will go forward. And thank you so much for coming up with the idea that day of, hey, why don't we do a podcast? <laughs> um thank you jennifer i really appreciate that that's very very kind of you and um I'm, i won't be going far and you can always hit me up on twitter transmission comes to you from the staff of knkx including posey gruner and kevin kniestead we get help from kari plogue and our executive producer is florangela davila we really appreciate your feedback. Send it to outreach at knkx.org and please consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 